0: Once again, we have the privilege of uh, praising God uh, in worship and now looking at His Word. We'll use, all right, yeah, that one works. All righty, here we are. Everyone can hear me now. All right, very good. It's important to be able to hear the word of God. Amen. 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 If you'll open your copy of the scripture of Matthew chapter 6, you know we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and here we are again. Uh, we're blessed to be able to uh, read the word of God and hear it expounded, uh, words that came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate the word incarnate Matthew chapter 6 we begin at verse 5 when you pray you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men truly I say to you they have their reward in full but you when you pray go into your inner room close your door and pray to your father who is in secret And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you, acknowledging our inadequacy and weakness as we attempt to uh, minister the word of God. We pray you use your truths to shepherd your people, to build them up in the faith, deepen our understanding of this great privilege that is ours from you to, to pray. And so we pray you meet every need uh, represented by every person in this room. If you know what they are. And we thank you for the privilege of sitting under your divine, inerrant, infallible, eternal truths. These things we pray in the glorious name of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How not to pray is a subject for this morning in these verses. Prayer is universally practiced among human beings but not all prayers are acceptable acceptable to God because they are not according to his will and purpose. We see this truth for instance in the book of James, James chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 uh, where we are told that prayers offered in doubt and not faith will not receive an answer from the Lord. Again, James, the half-brother of our Lord, writes in the fourth chapter of his letter, the third verse, You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We can journey back all the way to the Old Testament in Psalm 66, 18, which states, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In Jesus' preaching at this point in his Sermon on the Mount, he pivots to the subject of prayer. Our personal prayer life. How we are to conduct it in light of the faulty practices of his day. Our personal prayer life is to be a matter of practicing righteousness. We saw that earlier on when we looked at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, when Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So praying is part of practicing righteousness. It's an act of righteousness. An act of righteousness is a devotion to God in conformity to God's will. That's what it is. It is anything that's in conformity to God's will. That is an act of righteousness. Such praying is wholly acceptable to God. Whenever we pray uh, and our prayers conform or consistent with his revelation about his will and his word and his person, then we know that they are acceptable to him. By teaching us how not to pray, Jesus also teaches us what constitutes prayers that then attract the blessing of God, His uh, answers to our prayers. In fact, our Lord begins His discourse on how not to pray. When I say His discourse on how not to pray, I use that subject because He is talking about what you shouldn't do when you pray. So that's why it says how not to pray. And he begins, and we'll use this heading, do not pray hypocritically. Do not pray hypocritically. That's very important for us, and it wouldn't be here if it wasn't a potential temptation for us as believers to pray hypocritically. Jesus would never enunciate something that wasn't in the realm of possibility for his followers, and this is one of them. He says, you'll notice in verse 5, when you pray. It is inconceivable to Jesus that his disciples would not pray. Prayer is part and parcel of our spiritual life. It is something we do. When you, you came to Christ, you began to pray rightly for the first time. You began to pray to your heavenly father. And prayer for the believer is like breathing for our bodies. We're to pray. So, Jesus Expects us to do that. But Jesus goes on to tell us, you're not to be like the hypocrites. The the hypocrites are not to be our spiritual role models for prayer. Hypocrites are play-acting. We saw this last week. They're merely playing a religious role. They do not seek to honor and glorify God. They're unconcerned about his name. They don't want his name or his, all that he is to be honored in the world. They're not concerned about God's reputation. They're not concerned about his kingdom. They are hypocritical prayers and they're not really seeking an answer from God. Hypocrites are consumed with personal honor, esteem, and self-aggrandizement. The scribes and the Pharisees were masters, past masters of hypocrisy in religion. They were spiritual fakes. There's nothing real about their uh, religious devotion. Their righteousness was indeed superficial. It's the kind that prevent them from entering the kingdom of heaven, and that's an important point uh, that Jesus mentions here in this Sermon on the Mount, for he said in Matthew 5, 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. An external religion, a religion that is not internal, a religion that is fake, a religion that is not genuine, is not a religion that are righteous acts that will get one into heaven. The Pharisees, they occupied that category of people who are not heaven bound. Not in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us their motives, which he knew perfectly. You'll see it there in verse 5. What are their motives? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. He clearly articulates their motives for their religious activity. And Jesus can do that, you know, because he knew their motives perfectly. John chapter 2, verse 25 says this about our Lord. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in every human being. He knew the inner workings of their heart. He knew what sprang from the inner being of these people and their alleged devotion to God expressed by their alleged prayers of devotion. Jesus knew what motivated them. That's why he says what he does in verse 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so they may be seen by men. They loved attention. They loved what men would do, seeing them in their practice of religion. They they liked doing it in the synagogue, verse 5. Synagogue worship was typically led by the messenger of the synagogue who prayed standing by an ark containing the synagogue scrolls. The privilege of leading in prayer in the synagogue was a coveted privilege. Why was it coveted? It showed that the person was esteemed by the religious community and regarded as devoted to God. You get it, don't you? You're invited to pray in the synagogue. You get to stand before the ark where the scrolls, the word of God, are kept. And everybody, oh, this person, this individual is one of esteem. He is one of honor. So he loved doing that. But the hypocrites' devotion wasn't to God. They weren't devoted to God, but to their own honor, glory, and praise. Yesterday, as I was thinking about this, and again this morning, I, I thought about some uh, a well-known prophecy, um, prophecy, not prophecy, a prosperity teacher who, in an article in the Wall Street Journal about him, said he was the power of the kingdom and the glory. Uh, if, I, I should tell you his name. I just won't, since it's going on, on live stream. I don't want anybody listening. But I'm going to tell you, when I heard it, I said, that's blasphemous. You're not the power of the glory. And are you none of that? You're just a mere man. In fact, you're a false teacher. But he aggregated to himself that uh, title, those words, for his personal glory. And that's what the Pharisees loved. They loved that reality there to be in that place where they could receive the adulation of the worshipers. Not only that, verse 5 tells us they use the street corners. The Greek text says broad streets. They like to go to the major thoroughfares because obviously they were heavily trafficked. Perhaps we can compare uh, our 12th and Alameda, that intersection There. You know, it's like 12th and and Alameda. Uh, That intersection. Often, you pass by there, and you see people standing out with their signs. They're standing out with signs because it's a heavily trafficked intersection, and you want people to see it. A lot of eyeballs. That's why advertisers like to go in those, place their signs in places like that. Let me explain what was going on here in Jesus' day. The significance of the street corners. Obviously, there's a significance, but it was connected with prayer, obviously. You see, the Jews prayed three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And at those particular hours, what would happen, a trumpet, trumpet would be sounded to remind the pious it's time to pray. Now, here's the implied fault. The hypocrites would love to pray, where the largest audience would be assembled. Now, let me hasten to add, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong if you happen to be there at the time of prayer. You're going about your business, you're you're sincerely going to do what you need to do, and then you hear the trumpet sound, Oh, it's noon. And you stop because you are indeed a pious Jew, and you want to pray, you conform to the three times a day that was popular in Judaism in our Lord's day. And you pray. But a planned appearance to be there when the maximum number of people can see you there's the evil. You can see it what a hypocrite would do. A hypocrite knows the designated times and the hypocrite wanted everybody to see him engaging in his uh, piosity shall we say. And so he plans his steps, and he gets to where he needs to be. The trumpet goes off, and he says, oh, I've got to pray. And some have suggested that it was quite dramatic when those hypocrites did that, scribes, Pharisees, and others. And that that drama was intended, of course, to uh, help people see them. In fact, you notice in the text, verse 5, Jesus says, so that they may be seen by men. You see, their religion for them was a matter of, we say today, optics. It's all about appearance. How it looks. Mark 12, chapter 12, verse 40, and talking about the scribes, in the verses ahead of that, Jesus He says about them, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Poor lady, she just lost her husband. And here comes scribe to devour her house. Now let me explain the terminology here because devour the house, it sounds like they don't really eat the lumber, do they? What does that mean? What they would do, they would defraud them of their estate. You say, how did they do that? They would do it like this, with, with all the pretense of their alleged holiness and the long prayers, they say, you want to be blessed of God, give your money. That's what it was. You want God's blessing? Give your money. Uh, we see that today, don't we? They're on TV, and they want your money. That's how you get God's blessing. (laughs) Give to their ministry, and you'll get blessed. nothing new. That's what the scribes were doing. That's what the hypocrites were doing. They offered long prayers. The long prayer was nothing but a religious show to impress with their imaginary devotion to God and their holiness. It was all... um, The impetus was their pride, their self-exaltation. Now why would Jesus tell us that? I've already indicated in this message we're to be watchful that we do not practice our righteousness hypocritically. That's what he says in verse 1 of Matthew 6. Self-exaltation. To be seen by men. To be thought especially pious. You don't want to do that that needs to be absent from your life in terms of your spiritual practices. That's why Jesus says in the bottom of the verse there, in verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. What their reward is? They get it. What is their reward? The opinion of those who see them and acclaim them and think they're spiritual and devoted to God. They've gotten their reward in full. That's all they're going to get. God has no part in it. So do not pray hypocritically. Pray sincerely. Even when praying publicly. Pray sincerely. Now we need to hasten to add here because somebody would suggest, well then you just prayed. Others have prayed here publicly. Are you praying? What are you doing? Understand this. The words of Jesus here do not prohibit public prayers. Some people have suggested that. They say you're not supposed to do that based on the words that Jesus gives here. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Scripture elsewhere shows that that's not the case. You may recall in the book of John, Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, whom he was about to raise from the dead. In the 11th chapter, verses 41 through 42, the record tells us that our Lord prayed before others. We got the prayer there. He prayed publicly. He wasn't contradicting his words that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount by his actions there at Lazarus' tomb. What Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is not to pray hypocritically. Is not forbidding praying publicly. Others in scripture prayed publicly. Acts chapter 1, verse 24. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31. The church, when it met together for corporate worship, there was public prayer. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In fact, verse 8 in that passage, uh, Paul said he wanted uh, men to lift up their holy hands without dissension, argument, and prayer. So what this tells us that is this, that prayer meetings, praying in small groups bible study etc are not forbidden just hypocritical praying hypocritical praying and the reason Jesus is telling his audience then and us today the potential as I said earlier we can fall into that trap doing it for men's sake don't do it for men's sake When you, for example, when you're praying publicly, other people will hear you, but remember your audience is God. You're talking to him. People in public prayers who are listening, we're just eavesdropping. It's not for us. You can pray sincerely in public. And pray to God. Now our Lord continues in verse 6. There's a word but. He's making a contrast between the hypocritical praying of the scribes and Pharisees and that of his followers. But you when you pray go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. Let's stop there. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. Y'all probably know that don't you? <laughs> yeah, I know. You've been here a while. You say, yeah, we know, we know, we know. Because uh, he always has uh, some wonderful insight and uh, saying sometimes epithy and sometimes of are longer, but they're just full of wisdom. Charles Spurgeon remarked, quote, private prayer is a thing for which the hypocrite has no heart. End of quote. Spurgeon's right. They don't have a heart for that. They didn't pray in private because uh, nobody's there for them. They like to pray where people are. They have no heart for it. What is prayer? Prayer, by definition, is communion with God. Think about that. We get to pray to God. We didn't invent prayer. God did. He made a means for us to talk to him, the sovereign of the universe. And you can pray to him anytime, anywhere. Think about that privilege. When was the last time you picked up the phone and said, I want to talk to Joe, you know, the President of the United States? Yeah, right. You might hear silence on the other end. But you can go into your room, and you can get on your knees, and you can say, God, my father, and he's listening. He listens to you. Other folk may not give you the time of day, but God is always willing to listen to you. Hmm. Think about that. Go to your inner room. Now, the reason Jesus said in a room, because the houses in Israel at that time, they had a a room, an interior room, of course, that was windowless. that served as a storeroom for them in their homes. To be alone with God. To communicate with him in intercession. To praise him to make requests, to confess, and to supplicate before him, to unburden yourself before him. Tell him your secrets. Tell him the truth about you. He knows anyway, but you can lay it out before him. You can tell him your fears. You can tell him your sorrows. You can lay it all before him. you. Have you read the Psalms? You've read them. How honest the psalmists are. They tell God really what was going on. They don't try to varnish it, pretend I, I'm this super saint and I'm not having these problems. No, no, he once, Psalm writer mentioned he was like a dove, he wanted to fly away because of his trouble. Psalm 55, I believe it is. You just be honest with God. You can pray there and you're in your inner room where there's nobody to listen. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, close your door. Why does he say close your door? To remove the temptation to be seen by someone. You close off the opportunity for somebody to hear you. You, You're praying to God. You're not like the little boy who was on his knees at night and he was praying quite loudly and he was praying for a bicycle. His dad said, uh, son, you don't have to pray that loudly. Uh, God can hear you with lower volume. And the boy says, yeah, I know he can, but Grandma's in the next room. <laughs> He's praying to Grandma. <laughs> she did get the bike. He didn't know about God, but he knew Grandma could do it. <laughs> Close your door. It's what we're to do. You can be undistracted. You shut out distractions when you do that. Jesus exemplified this aloneness in principle. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 records a time, among others, where Jesus went away to a secluded place to play, pray to his father. Remember that instance? He got up early in the morning and went away to pray, and uh, the disciples were looking for him. Where is he? Where did they finally found him? So long to pray. And we pray in secret to our father, as the text says. In verse 6, who is in secret? When you enter that inner room, get this, people. God, the father, your heavenly father, will be there in that secret place. Isn't that what the text says? The father who is in secret. He's there. you and he. You might raise the question, okay, all of us in this room, we might be um, praying in our secret room or praying privately at the same time. There are perhaps millions of Christians doing it at the same time around the world. How in the world can God be in all these places? Be intimate with you or me and intimate with everybody else who's a child of God, and he's there with them in the room. How does that work? Well, the greatness of God is articulated by his perfections, or his attributes. One of them is his attribute of perfection of omnipresence. It means that God is everywhere. Now, let me further expound on that. He transcends space. That is, he is not bound by one place, like we are. We're right here in this room, right? You can specify you're right there in that seat. God is not bound by space. In fact, get this in mind, God created space. Space did not exist until God created it. There was no such thing as east, north, west, and south until God created spatial limitations. That's all something God created for creatures. He's not bound by it. Further, he is fully present in every place. He is present in every point in space with his entire being. Let me state it like this. God is not diffused. He doesn't have part of him over here with you, a part of him over here with me, a part of himself over there with somebody else. No, no, no. His entire being is with you. All his omniscience, all his omnipresence, uh, all his omnipotence, all his love, all his all of his perfections right there. All that he is is with you. Psalm 139 verse 17 7- 10 the psalmist David talks about where whither shall I flee from your spirit Jeremiah 23 verses 23 through 24 it's another expression verse 24 Jeremiah 23 says this this is God speaking he says do I not fill the heavens and the earth declares the Lord (laughs) he fills the heaven and earth there's nowhere you can be that he is not He is with you in your inner room with all of himself. So when you go there to pray, he's there with you. It's a marvelous reality, isn't it? Only our God can be like that. So do not pray hypocritically. Second thing. Do not pray mindlessly. Verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Meaningless repetition. How not to pray includes the content of our prayers. What is to be prayed? Meaningless repetition is one word in the original language. And it can mean idle or thoughtless chatter. Pharisees and others utilize thoughtless or mindless repetition in their public prayers. They would heap up empty phrases. A practice they picked up from the Gentiles or pagans. Jesus don't carry that into your inner room don't don't go into your time of private prayer with God heaping up empty phrases don't be mindless don't disengage your mind when you pray to God when you do that do understand that such practice is indifference to communion with God you need to be thinking when you pray You want to do that. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Don't pick up your prayer practice from pagans. They don't know how to pray. Don't listen to people in the world. They don't know how to pray. Find your understanding of how to pray from the word of God, right? Now, we must further comment here. We don't want to misconstrue Jesus' instruction here to be a prohibition against repeating a request. Somebody might think, well, gee, I I want to ask him about that again. Jesus' own practice refutes the interpretation that he is saying um, you're never to repeat a request because Jesus himself did. Matthew 26, verses 39 through 44. Remember in Gethsemane, he repeated. In fact, I think as Matthew it says, he said the same thing. Paul did not interpret Jesus' words to mean that you can't repeat a request because you remember he asked the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Matthew 7, 11, 7, 7 through 11, we can... Um, Ask, seek, and knock, keep on asking, keep on seeking and knocking, keep on seeking. It's a repetition of the verbs there. Roman Catholics light candles, thinking that their request will be will continuously ascend to heaven. As long as a candle is lit. You see, people like they go in there and they light those candles. You've seen that, haven't you? You want why are they lighting candles? Well, because they think that somehow, it's a prayer going to God, that's nonsense. There's nowhere in the New Testament where we're authorized to light a candle as an idea of prayer, It's not praying. The rosary, repeating those, you know, that mechanical device, just repeating the Hail Mary's and the Pater Noster, Noster our Father, is it's called, et cetera. Repetitious mindlessness. The genuine repetition is okay. Repetition of a petition is not off limits to the child of God. He has not strayed into forbidden spiritual territory when he asked father again. We've seen that proved already in the word of God. Now we look here. Verse 7. And we see the B portion. And I think these are probably related, but there's this nuance. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. The pagans. That word, heard, in the original language is an intensive form of the verb to hear. The pagans, in order to get God's attention and guarantee a response, they uttered gibberish and they prayed long prayers, long prayers, they figure they didn't do that, God is not going to listen. Don't do that. So do not be like them, verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask. God does not need to be cajoled. He does not, uh, he is not reluctant to answer our prayers. In fact, God is more willing to answer our prayers than we're willing to pray them. Isn't that true? In fact, in Isaiah 65, verse 24, there's a text there that will be, that text will be realized in the fullness, uh, its fullness during the millennial period. But it's true of God toward us today. This is what Isaiah 65, 24 says. Before they call, I will answer. He knows our need before we ask him to meet it. When you go to God in prayer, you don't have to inform him. He already knows. He didn't wake up this morning scratching it. I wonder what Terry's got on his mind today. He better get in here and tell me. Well then the question arises, naturally, why pray? If God already knows it, why pray? Let me give you some reasons. One, because we're commanded to do so in scripture. God says pray. <laughs> How many times we read in the New Testament, we're commanded to pray. We're to be devoted to prayer, Colossians 4.2, for example. So in obedience, we do. Second thing, God, in a way beyond our comprehension, has incorporated our prayers in His sovereign providential ordering of the affairs of the earth, including your life. We do not understand how a sovereign God, who orders everything providentially, works out everything, and He doesn't really need us. Yet He's included our prayers in that work. So we pray. He doesn't ask us to understand it, he just tells us to do it. But I think John Calvin's best. John Calvin, the great reformer, Genevan reformer. His words are quite instructive. Let me read them to you. Listen carefully, I think you'll be helped. But if God knows what we need before we seek it, there might appear to be no benefit in prayer. If of his own accord he is ready to help us, what need have we to interject our prayers that might get in the way of the spontaneous course of his providence? There is an easy answer in the very purpose of prayer. The faithful do not pray to tell God what he does not know or urge him to duties or hurry him on when he delays Rather, they pray to alert themselves to seek him, to exercise their faith by meditating upon his promises, unburdening their cares by lifting themselves into his bosom. Finally, they pray to testify that from him alone, all good for themselves and for others is hoped for and asked. As for himself, what he has determined to give of his own free will And even before he is asked, he promises to give all the same in response to our prayers. Now listen to this. Keep hold of both points, then. Our prayers are anticipated by him in his freedom, yet what we ask, we gain by prayer. End of quote. Master theologian helps us to understand. He knows what he's going to do. But he's going to do it in response to our prayers. You say, I don't understand it. Ah, he's God. You're not. We know how not to pray. We also know how to pray. And the contrast given by Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Later... In the incredible mind of our Savior, he's going to explain what prayer ought to consist of. Prayer that comes from the mind of God for us. But that waits till later. Stay tuned. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Instruction that our Lord Jesus has given us and preserved by you in your word. Take these truths and apply them to every heart in the room. May our prayers reflect increasingly that which you want them to as you've explained it to us in your word. Help us to be faithful at prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Remove those things that are not pleasing in your sight. Thank you for this discipline, spiritual discipline, this means of grace. Whereby we can draw near to you. In a secret room, even when we're not in a room, but just alone with you. in praying. We thank you for this great, great grace. Help us to value it more. Pursue it more. We people who relish communing with you, recognizing what you've done for us and allowing us to do so, to come into your presence by the blood of Christ who's provided a new and living way. We have access to you by the Spirit. We thank you for that. We pray for those in this room who don't have that not come to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you grant them. They will uh, turn in faith to you. Pray for one who's saved, but unchurched. They will come to this local assembly and be a part of us. We pray these things, Lord, that you might be glorified. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.